Hey everyone, I'm Jonathan. And I'm Jeremy. We are the Evangelicals. Today's conversation has been brought on by events in the world. Uh, about two weeks ago now, John MacArthur at a conference at his church celebrating, I think he had been there 50 years, celebrating that was was asked a question. Um, he was supposed to give a short response uh, to one or two word phrases, kind of his feelings or thoughts. And one of the phrases given to him was Beth Moore. And John MacArthur, a very prominent uh, evangelical pastor, I think you would, would call him, his radio ministry, Grace to You, is very popular. When he, when he was given the word Beth Moore, Beth, the words Beth Moore, he said, go home. Go home. And the the point was, uh, he he was after the after the audience laughed. Oh, thought yeah. it was very funny. They loved it. Loved it. After he was done saying that, the moderator said, "You know, do you want to say more on that?" And John MacArthur said, "You know, um, I believe in the authority of Scripture, and the fact that we have women preaching is a, is a sign that we've, you know, that the church has completely lost its sense of authority of Scripture." Which brings up, really, the question of what does it mean to have a high view of Scripture? And uh, this idea of inerrancy, which comes out of the idea of fundamentalism. So today we're going to talk about fundamentalism, we're going to talk about inerrancy of Scripture, we're going to talk about these things that in the evangelical church we argue about, um, because, because we live in an age of polarities, of binaries. So you've got the fundamentalists on one hand, who are understood to be ultra-conservative, immovable, and they have these different under, different things that they hold very, very important to them that they're immoved on. Or in evangelical Christianity, if you're not a fundamentalist, the fundamentalist would call you a flaming liberal. And so you have the fundamentalists and the liberals. And so what John MacArthur was saying is he's saying, you know, Beth Moore preaching is a sign that the evangelical church has been hijacked by liberals or or by everything that he doesn't want the church to be and so today we're going to talk about just is there is there only a binary in in those who want to confess the good news who want to be con, who want to be called evangelicals um when, when i was at chicago i had a professor who uh who said something very wise we were in a class and someone was making fun of fundamentalists and the professor said this he said be very very careful about making fun of fundamentalists because all of us at the end of the day are fundamentalists about something. A fundamentalist is someone who does not, is not willing to budge on a particular thing. And really all of us, if hard pressed would have things that we're fundamentalists about. Yeah. There's fundamentalists on the conservative side of the political aisle and the liberal side of the political. That's exactly and, right. And we fail to, and I think where, where the hard part comes in is when it seems that that the things that people would be fundamentalists about or that they have potentially been fundamentalists about, and now all of a sudden they're talking a different language. And it just, and I know we're not going to get into the political realm, but it just seems it's just an interesting language. And I was actually just talking to my brother about this on the ride here, that it's funny with this whole impeachment thing. You have Republicans who are saying what Democrats said when Clinton was getting impeached and vice versa. Well, yeah, yeah, of course. And it, and it's just interesting that 
what was a big deal back then, all of a sudden for the same people aren't big deals now. And and so I think that's where it, it becomes hard to understand where you're really coming from or what your 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 true beliefs are because it seems to be based on who's in power rather than having this firm understanding like no this is this is true no matter who the president is this is true no matter who's in power um that's when fundamentals seem to get a little wishy-washy because it seems to be based on a person rather than a, a firm belief and this is what i think is actually true that's a very good point i mean beth moore i don't know her personally and I, I don't listen to her a lot. I, I've heard some of her stuff, read some of her stuff. But I have every reason to believe that Beth Moore uh, really believes that she loves Jesus, that she is a Christian, that she has a high view of Scripture. I mean, every time she talks, she's lifting up Scripture. But according to John MacArthur, who is definitely the man in power at his 50th anniversary party, you know. Yeah, sure. But according to John MacArthur, he's she's... She's the furthest thing from um, kind of fun, um, evangelical integrity that one could be as a minister, you know, um, which is, to your point, the, the person who is in power is really the one who kind of makes the rules. We were talking about the formation of fundamentalism, and you were saying that really in the history of Christianity, this idea of evangelical fundamentalism is really less than 100 years old. So it... It came from, and when you said we want to talk about this, I, I knew of this book that we had read when I was in Arizona. It's called Square Pig, and Square Peg, and it says uh, the subtitle is "Why Wesleyans Aren't Fundamentalists." Um, it's edited by a guy named Al Truesdale, but it has a lot of different essays in it that he kind of comp- compiled and, and and created this book. But it's interesting because the first one is is by a guy named Floyd Cunningham, and he just talks about the history of where fundamentalism came from. Uh, where it even originated, and so I, I was. It's just intriguing that it, it was coined. The phrase fundamentalism was was only coined in 1920, and I think sometimes people who are strong fundamentalists and say, "No, this 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 has been true for all time." It's just I don't know that that is necessarily how people have looked at the Bible. I'm not sure it's how people have translated. Um, these scriptures, I'm not sure when a Jewish person looked at the Old Testament that they had these fundamentalist ideas of, of, of understanding what these scriptures were trying to get at. And, and so there's uh, several things he talks about, but in, in 1910 to 1915, there were these papers that were written uh, called the Fundamentals, and it was kind of interesting that it came out of more of a reaction to like Darwinianism, uh, evolution was was really big in yeah, the there late was a 1800s. Big revolution going on in science at this time. Yeah, in science, um, this whole Enlightenment thing was kind of is the beginning, sort of the tail end of it. Exactly, and and so it seemed to be a reaction to people looking at. Um, at, at humanism, people looking at creation, people looking at science. People were starting to do critical biblical work at this time also. Yes, this is looking when at biblical studies are kind of being transformed at this time. At context at, at di- all of this uh, stuff. where all the stuff, you know, coming up with the understanding of the first five books and who actually wrote them and where yeah. there are all these sources coming Historical together. Historical critical method exactly being born. Right. And and so these papers were written saying almost in opposition to this this understanding that people were starting to have or, or the ways they were looking at the Bible, the ways they were looking at translating the Bible. And so these papers were written between 1910, 1915, and then the actual phrase 
fundamentalist was coined in 1920. So the fundamentals, as Jeremy said, were papers that were sent out. They were actually funded by uh, the people who owned the Sunoco gas uh, company. These people were, they were big dollar funding the sending of these pamphlets. So if you had an address in America, I think I think they were getting lists of addresses of addresses of people, people's homes and churches, and they were sending them out by the by the thousands, saying, "Hey, here's what America needs to know. Here are the fundamentals, and here are here are the nine um, fundamentals that they were saying that Christians believe in these things: the inerrancy and verbal inspiration of Scripture, which could probably use some some translation, but this is pretty short. Yeah, the Trinity." The virgin birth and incarnation of Christ, original sin, the atonement of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, a premillennial return of Christ, a spiritual rebirth, and a bodily resurrection and eternal salvation or damnation. This is interesting. Some of you sitting there may be thinking to yourself, I feel like I've heard a list like this before. This sounds a lot like Christian creeds. Yeah. But this is this is what essentially the fundamentals were is kind of an American creed. In light of the scientific revolution, what was going on in historical critical biblical um, method, these people got together and put these fundamentals together. With the exception of the Bible. Most creeds don't speak to this understanding of how we view scripture. Right. It's more of understanding who God is, who Jesus is, who we believe Jesus to be, the Holy Spirit, how we live in the midst of that, but they lead with, and I think this is a huge deal because I think when you're looking at the Trinity and when you're looking at some of these things, obviously the way you view scripture is going to lend itself and how you talk about those things as well. And especially the one, the, the dispensationalist, the, the, pre, the, the pre- pre-millennial. Yeah. Pre- well, part of the reason that, in, I think this is part of the reason, and hist- historians in America believe, part of the reason that we are so fascinated with or enticed by this pre-millennial understanding of the return of Christ, the rapture that you, that is seen in the Left Behind series, is because this is what's been propagated in America, this particular idea of uh, Christian theology, which historically the church has not bought. This isn't this isn't like all places at all time people believe in the premillennial return of Christ. It's a very American response, you know, to what's going on in the world is this premillennial uh, return of Christ understanding. So, fu- so fundamentalism formally, uh, as as like a as a term in America was coined in the early 20th century. But there are through, throughout history, there are things that people have taken really firm stances on in the church. Um, and, and you know, many of the things that people have taken firm stances on in the church, we look at now on this side of history and think, oh my goodness, what were they thinking? Um, I was reading Thomas Aquinas uh, last week, and Aquinas says one of the um, most charitable things you can do for a heretic is kill him. <laughs> there you go. Which you would have a hard time finding a Christian, you know, in the 21st century saying publicly the most charitable thing you can do to a heretic is is burn them. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I mean, exactly. because you would be you would be in danger of probably getting locked up yourself. I mean, this is would probably be termed, you know, hate speech or some of this. I mean, we don't we don't believe the same way that we used to fundamentally. Slavery. Slavery right. is uh, um, people were preaching in the 19th century in America. This is a part of the Bible. Yep. It's something that we're not budging on. 
this is what we're doing. And and as I was reading a little bit of this this essay, it talked a lot about slavery, women, and how people use biblical passage to to promote or to um, to rationalize our stance on why slavery was okay and and why women shouldn't be doing what they're, you know, shouldn't have the, the, the power to preach or the well, ability shoot, to the preach. the power to vote, man. Yeah, the power to vote. Because we shouldn't, because um, according to this passage, you know, by Timothy, there's this thing about women having leadership or men should be not, should not be submitting to a woman's authority or something like this. And so they would take this phrase to say really that, you know, there's not many civil rights for women because they shouldn't be having civil power, right? So I think that as getting back to once again, it seems like the one of the fundamental, the fundamental, fundamental of the fundamentalists. I don't know. That was very cute. <laughs> is how do we view scripture? Yes, and that's, that's really honestly at the heart of the conversation, and probably the heart of our conversation today. Really, yeah. And so I think that as we're looking at scripture, and I think you're right. We all have fundamentals that that we are that we hold on to that are firm in our lives that that we would literally hopefully die for. And, and and I think that as we are in the church, I think having better conversations and letting scripture definitely inform them and be the base of, of those fundamentals is huge. But I think where we start with scripture, how we look at scripture, what we tend to believe about, once again, these words that are so loaded with meaning when you look at the word inerrancy and you look at um, the whole word, like the verbal, um, what did I, I forget exactly what it said, but the verbal giving of inspiration, scripture, inspiration, inspiration of scripture, um, they're loaded with, with so much, um, meaning that I think that, that maybe a good conversation is, and, and, and we are unashamedly coming from a perspective known as Wesleyan and, and under that, that point of view that, that understanding shapes how we view that, um, and, and view the Bible, um, but so, and, and we've always been unapologetic in in understanding where we're coming from and our stance. Um, but I think it's just a, an interesting. I think a, 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 once again, it seems like the conversation has to get to how do we view the Bible and what is the the authority of the Bible and 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 understanding and having a, a good dialogue on um, on that. Yeah, and we also believe the Bible um, differently than than uh, Calvin. And this is something that not many Calvinists know. Calvin wanted a theocracy. He wanted the Bible to be state authority. In America, it's hard to be truly Calvinist because we believe fundamentally in the separation of church and state, which I don't think, again, I don't think that's an idea that many Calvinists have ever considered. It's actually hard to be a Calvinist in America because what Calvin was trying to do is he was trying to set up a system that was based on religion, and Calvin's Calvin's a good guy. I mean, he's trying to do a legitimate project in this kind of post-Reformation world. And I don't think we take his words for what for what they actually were or what he was actually trying to do. And so a lot of people pit uh, like Wesleyan Arminian theologians <coughs> against Calvinists, but I don't think that that's fair. Sure. It's just not it's not a fair distinction. It's not a fair binary to do that. Um but but we also need to recognize that our our place in history does affect, and it has always affected, the way that people confront and look at Scripture. Uh, Jeremy and I both 
I'm going to speak for you right now. Argue with me if I'm wrong. Okay. We have a very high view of scripture. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we we believe that that God has has throughout history and continually does reveal Himself through the Holy Scriptures. And so, as we're having a conversation about scripture today, um, that's probably just the thing that we need to put it out there. We're not having a conversation in a pejorative way about scripture, like making fun of it or this is this is life and death for us. I mean this is ministry for us. Yeah. This is very real stuff. So I wanna I want to take us to the Timothy passage that is referenced when people talk about women in ministry. Okay. Can we can we can we jump into one more thing before we yeah, get go, there? Go. What is it? I think that that's what a distinction we need to make too is I think when so just talking about this word inerrant because and then I think it'll help us understand this passage. You know, this is, is this an under- important word? And, yeah. and I think that inerrancy was in the fundamentals. I right? think what that mes- most often comes to be understood in a fundamentalist perspective, the word doesn't get used a whole lot. But is this word literal, Jeremy? That's right. And so I think it's important before we jump into this text that, that a lot of times people look at scripture and say, when they say the word inerrant, they also think that we should take it as literal, and and nobody does does that. No <laughs> one takes the Bible literal. Right. Because we, all the guys still have two eyes. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> that's exactly right. And all the... And anyone who's, ever sinned, anyone who's ever sinned with their hands... We have both Jesus hands. says, cut them off. Yeah. It'd be better for you to enter, enter life maimed or crippled. And so it's interesting that even people who say this... Fun, have this fundamentalist idea of scripture and say, yeah, we take the Bible literally... There's there's so many places that when we look at scripture, that that we it doesn't all add up, I guess, and and it, it's hard to, to look at the Bible and say I take every ounce of it literally. So it's so interesting that you're saying this. I had a friend last week who asked me, you know, what I thought about John MacArthur's comments with Beth Moore, and I said, well, John MacArthur obviously prioritizes what Paul said in Timothy over against other passages of scripture. Uh, that we'll talk about today, and uh, the my friend said, you know, do you not think the Bible is inerrant? And I said, no one thinks the Bible is inerrant in the sense that they take it literally. And I said this thing about, you know, you still have two hands. You still have both of your eyes. You know, you don't take the Bible literally. And the friend said this to me, which was very interesting. He said, well, when the Bible talks in hyperbole, we understand that it's talking hyperbole. And this is a scary shift. What my friend is saying is, I know when the Bible's talking in hyperbole and when it's not, right? Which is not taking the Bible literally. That's right. not a fundamentalist approach to the Bible. Sure. And and and, and it's just, everybody, it, we would all just do better to re- to recognize there are things in the Bible we take seriously, and there are things that we don't. So the conversation is not about whether or not we take the Bible literally. It's what things are we willing to die on in the Bible. That's the conversation, you guys. Yeah, and you know we keep hitting on the Sermon on the Mount passage that Jesus said, but even in Corinthians, it tells women not to wear jewelry and not to, you know. And so, and I know a lot of women in my church, or in even in potentially Baptist churches, go look at a picture of John MacArthur's wife. Yeah. <laughs> So it's just interesting, you know what I'm saying? That we, we I don't even think pick and choose. Heads covered, right? I mean, I mean, it's like, come on. <clears throat> so I think that. All right, sorry. Let's get to the Bible. Uh, but I thought I think I thought that was interesting. I think it was something that we needed to be to be said that sometimes when people use the word inerrant, they actually think that they that we should take it literally, but nobody leans into that 
so here's, holistically. So here's the passage. This was written uh, according to the authorship accredited in Timothy by Paul to Timothy, his pupil. So Paul is writing a letter, a personal letter, to Timothy, who's a young minister, who's he, who he's mentoring in a particular context, okay? And Paul says this, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing. No one ever reads this far in this passage. Paul says women will be saved through childbearing if, if, they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Two things Paul says here that no one believes. The first one, that women are safe through childbearing. I was having a con- this conversation with someone about this passage who said, um, he said, you know, well, Paul says women shouldn't, shouldn't talk in the church. I said, well, Paul also says women are safe through childbearing, but you don't believe that. And he, he said, well, Paul didn't actually mean that. <laughs> and I said, what are you talking about? He's like, Paul didn't actually mean that women are saved through childbearing. And I was like, I'm not trying to be a jerk to you, but I've read this stuff in the Greek. And yeah, actually, Paul did. That's actually what Paul meant. Right. He meant women are saved through childbearing. Like, how you can take you him, say that he like, didn't if, mean that, but he does mean Exactly. Me. Like, the thing is, in this passage, there are two things that a majority of Christians don't believe in at all. That women are saved through childbearing. There are women that can't, that have, can't children. have children. So they're Come doomed. Come on. <laughs> According to this passage, right. also, Paul says here, um, Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. That's also f- not true. This is a bad reading of Genesis by Paul. The Genesis text says, Adam, who was standing there with her, took the fruit and ate it also. Yeah. Yes, Eve gave it to him. Yes, Eve was the one doing the negotiating. But in this passage in Genesis, what's going on is... Adam is just allowing what's happened. Adam, Adam is um, an accomplice. That's the, the writer of Genesis. The story of Genesis is telling us that men and women are culpable together. Yeah. Because if Adam takes the fruit and just tells, forces Eve to eat it, you kind of have misogyny from the beginning. But what actually happens here is a very powerful woman in the garden, in God's good created order, is allowed to talk. She's allowed to have conversation. God doesn't say to Eve in the garden, hey, Eve, by the way, you need to be very quiet and fully submit to Adam because he came first. That's not the created order. Yeah, and I think it's interesting to me that we don't even just begin with Genesis 1, 27, I think it is, where God looks at male and female and says both of them were created in the image of God. It wasn't that male was like higher than, you know what I'm saying? But the story... The whole story begins with God looking at both male and female and saying, you are both created in my image. Well, it's, that's a huge priority. Right. Like the, text, the text has opportunity to say, man is more important than woman. Right. It could easily say that, but it says ma- male and female, he created them. Yeah. Together, pairing them. And so to me, the first time that it talks about this order of man being above woman is in the broken world, not in the world as God desired it to be. So after sin, that's where uh, he looks at Adam and says, or looks at Eve and says, your husband will rule over you. Um, he'll have authority over you. 
But as Christians, we aren't called to live for the broken world. We're called to live for the redeemed world, and in the re- and, and in the way of the world that a way in the um, the way the world God wants it to be that He created it to be. And so, if we look at that first understanding, male and female created in God's image, and that's the beginning, not the the. And that's the desire. I think that's God's dream. That's the way God wanted it. It was good. It was appropriate. It was exactly the way God intended for it to be. Sin enters the world. And that's when, for, no, sorry if this offends, but all hell broke loose. Well, quite literally. Quite literally and figuratively that, that that's the broken world. And as Christians, I think N.T. Wright had this quote one time that says, Christians are those people who live today like one day everybody else is going to live. And so we don't live for the way of the world that we see the world. We live for the way we believe the world will be one day mm-hmm. when God redeems it, reconciles all things to himself. That's what we are living for and how we should live. So I don't think we think critically enough about the base, the basement, the foundation of our worldviews, but you just described something that is a huge difference in Christian theology. So what you just described in that the passage where God says these things are the result of sin, you read that passage and you see this is a result of sin. This is not good. Right. There are people that read that passage as to say, well, this is God's prescription of the order because sin is in charge now. Right. Which I don't, I don't agree with that view, but let's say that is your view. If that is your view, when Jesus comes... Jesus proclaims there's a new kingdom order. We're going back to the garden, baby, essentially. People read the end of Revelation. Right. I mean, this, like, this is what Jesus comes to do. <laughs> he comes to take us back. And reformed, um, non-reformed, conservative, liberal, we're all agreeing on that these days, is that Jesus came proclaiming a new kingdom of God, proclaiming that we're going back, with that, that um, the eschaton is coming. However you believe the eschaton, we, we argue about that, but we do believe that Jesus inaugurated a new kingdom that looks more garden-like, that looks more godly, that looks more holy. And and this is a problem with the fundamentalist arguments in America right now is that we have these two different views that we're trying to uphold that just fundamentally don't work together. These people who think, well, sin is still in charge. So while sin's in charge, you know, the status quo is, it's okay for the status quo to be perpetuated. And there are other people that are saying, no, no. God was not prescribing things for the good for the good of the order. He was saying this is a result of sin. We've got to move away from these things. Yeah. And I've never asked John MacArthur this question, but from the way that I hear him talking, it sounds like he's very satisfied with the state of sin that the world is in, um, which becomes, you know, um, as a Christian, in that worldview, I have a hard time figuring out what's the point of living if I'm just pushing along a status quo that I have no that I have no place in changing. But I think it 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 goes to one of the fundamentals of this understanding of a premillennial return of Christ because they don't view the world as going to be redeemed. We're getting out of here. The world is bad. It's this whole platonic sorry, um, but this understanding that matter is bad, evil but I have a spirit inside of me that's good and it doesn't see it doesn't have this understanding of that that when God looked at the created world, it was good. You're it exactly was appropriate. Right. And so, so yeah, the whole thing boils down to earth is bad. We're just passing through. 
my treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. It's this understanding of this is evil and it's this never going to get better. And there's no hope in that. The hope is for what's going to happen later when we leave this place. Yeah. I, I, I want to go back to, to scripture. I want to talk about this first Timothy thing. I want to talk about prioritization of scripture. So people, people have been asking me this week, you know, what do you do with this passage from first Timothy with this, these words by John MacArthur? And my response has been, you know, I, I love the Bible. And so I'm not interested in throwing out parts of the Bible. I have to deal with the troubling parts of the Bible. And there are many. I mean, just as it pertains to salvation, um, Martin Luther uh, Martin Luther was such a fundamentalist about Paul in Romans, and what in Paul said that we're not just we are justified by faith apart from works. Luther distributed a Bible without James. Yeah, <laughs> he proposed a Bible without James, who was who was the Lord's disciple. Yeah. But Luther could not. But Luther Luther got it. He saw that Romans and James said opposite things. Yeah, uh, James says, "Show me your." He says, "Faith without deeds is dead." Yeah. completely yeah and roman says we're saved without deeds yeah and luther couldn't he couldn't have them both in the same bible and so he threw away james but we still have james in our bible yeah. because christians throughout history have recognized there's tensions in scripture for me this little tertiary section where paul says a couple crazy things that women are saved through childbirth and women should not talk and um uh, the other thing, oh, that um, that Adam didn't sin, where he says these three crazy things. This is not the most important passage of scripture to me as it pertains to women talking. The most important passage in scripture for me as it pertains to women talking is what was prophesied by the prophet Joel and that, oh yeah, the apostle Peter lifts up at the first sermon of the church. We are in the church of Jesus Christ. Let's go to our own literature. Yeah. The first sermon preached in the church of Jesus Christ, the text is from Joel chapter two, in which God says this, in the last days, I'm gonna pour out my spirit on all people. And you know how you're gonna know that I'm pouring out my spirit on all people? Your sons and your daughters will prophesy indiscriminately, male and female, I'm gonna pour out my spirit and they will prophesy. I understand, Paul says in his letter to Timothy, women should not have authority over a man. However, prophecy is the ability to hear a word of God for the community. Yeah. However you parse that out, yeah. that's leadership. Yeah, That's authority. And, and we, it's going to affect men. Yeah, and it, another passage that people bring up is Corinthians. And what's interesting about the Corinthian passage where he talks about women and what they should wear and how they should this adorn themselves. And talking, and yeah, yep, this is the Apostle Paul again. What people don't, what don't bring up a whole lot is in the same letter... He talks about a woman who is prophesying in the church. Yes, and, that's exactly right. And, and and so even in that letter, you have this these conflicting ideas. So there's got to be something bigger going on than just looking at this literally. Because if you looked at it literally, you'd be schizophrenic. You'd be all over the place. You'd be thinking, okay, is it all right for women to prophesy? Because in this one letter, in this chapter 13, I don't know, I'm butchering the chapters. I don't know. Probably should have done a little more research. But earlier in the letter, he talks about a woman who is prophesying in the church and supporting her. Later in the letter, he's talking about women should talk to their husbands and and wear head coverings and such. And and, and so there's got to be more to that than just looking at it and thinking, well, women shouldn't talk in the church. Well, so in our love and our crazy desire to to love scripture and to speak right of scripture has to to push us 
to to say what's actually happening here. Yeah. Well, so an, another another argument that I've been hearing people make this week is, well, what the scripture is saying is that women shouldn't preach. What we need to realize is that preaching in the theatrical published way that we do preaching today did not exist in the early church. Right. The reason Paul the reason Paul didn't say women shouldn't preach is because preaching didn't exist in the way that it does now. Yeah. And we we take the we take what we want to take from the Bible and we impose it in our lives in the way that we want it to so that it can say what we want to say. But the fact of the matter is um uh, when when John MacArthur uses a passage of scripture that Paul gave to Timothy to talk about what Beth Moore is doing, in my personal opinion that I think should be taken seriously, he's doing something completely anachronistic, something completely out of time, something completely out of context that's not fair to the Apostle Paul or to Beth Moore. Or the Bible. Well, yeah, as a whole, <laughs> as a canon of scripture that we take seriously as the word of God. Yeah. And I think, so maybe a... Uh, uh, the next part or something to really think about is, is I think that uh, I heard, I want to say our DS said it at our church on Sunday, but when we look at scripture, I think it's important. And, and it may be a question to ask was, is, was Jesus a fundamentalist? Because if Jesus is a fundamentalist, I've just been thinking about this, even since we've been having this conversation, what does he do with a woman who was caught in adultery? I mean, he definitely doesn't pass the fundamentalist test in that scene. Right. Because... Scripture says she should be stoned. Right. And so then you think, okay, well, then what does Jesus do with, I mean, just all these, with Zacchaeus, a tax collector, somebody who's working for the Roman government, somebody who is, he probably doesn't go to his house. What does Jesus do? With, you know, and you said so there's just all these Well, there's things. a reason that he was crucified by the church and the state. Right. <laughs> and so I think that that as we are looking at these passages, and one thing that, that once again, our DS said is, is I think that we have to look at the Old Testament. We have to look at the Apostle Paul. We have to look at all of it in light of what did Jesus say about who we should be and how did Jesus choose to live into his society, his Zitzimleben, his setting in life. How did he choose to, if, if, if really he believed when he said, that was sarcasm, that I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but I came to fulfill them. And that all the law and the prophets can be summed up in loving God and loving others. And we look at some of these Old Testament passages and then we look at Jesus and we think, well, Jesus didn't. And then he, we hear Jesus say things like, you've heard it said, but I tell you. You've heard it said, but I'm telling you, this is what it actually looks like to be a part of this kingdom. Um, and you can't put it at any of the political parties that was happening at Jesus's time. Absolutely not. And that's you can't right. put it at anything because, and that's why they they gnashed their teeth and they tried to kill him several times and ultimately did end up turning him over because they said he had blasphemed. He wasn't living into their understanding of how we take this literally. And I really believe that those guys would have stoned that adulterer. They'd probably done it many times before because that's what... Deuteronomy or whatever law said that that's what you're supposed to do. And Jesus didn't look at that in a fundamental way, in a literal way, but he says, no, you missed the point of what that was actually trying to push us to as the people of God. And this is, this is what we are going to do. Hey, if you don't have any sin, then you go ahead. And, and I think he just turned their 
fundamental idea, I'm going to use that word as much as I can in reference yeah. to, yeah, yeah, he <laughs> turned there, fundamental understanding of what the Torah and the prophets were saying and saying, this is what you guys read into this, but I'm telling you, the kingdom looks way different than that understanding. Well, and I, I wonder how often we think to ourselves or we contemplate the thought or the question, what did Jesus come to change? What did he come to do? If Jesus really came to do what he said he was coming to do, then it would be impossible for us to have all of the answers from Jesus because he said, I'm bringing about a new kingdom. And if he's bringing about a, a new kingdom that looks different than a previous kingdom, then we can't just we can't just bank on the way things have been done in the past continually. This is why the early church had the council in Jerusalem is because the Holy Spirit was guiding them to do things that looked different than the old school way of things, right? Peter has this mind-blowing vision of the sheet that comes down and there's barbecue ribs on the sheet. Yeah. And Peter's like, I can't eat something that came from a pig. And it's like God was saying to them, don't call anything that I've created unclean. You need to shift your thinking. Gentiles are a part of this too. And so the early church gets together and this is Acts 14, read it. And they're, 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 they're bust. They're beating their heads against the wall, trying to be faithful to scripture and trying to be faithful to the work of the Holy Spirit, but recognizing something new and something different is going on in the world because Jesus came saying the kingdom of God is at hand. Something new is happening, you guys. And what did Jesus say was going to happen when he left? But he was going to send us his spirit who was going to do what? He was going to lead us into all truth, implying that we don't have all truth yet. Like we do, we have not received the full revelation of Jesus Christ and we don't know exactly the way all things ought to be ordered in the world right now. That's kind of what is being implied. And what we do when we get scared is we go to this place of default in our minds and our hearts where we go back and we say, well, this is the way things have always been done. And so this is the way that we've got to do them. And I'm sorry, that doesn't cut it in the age of the spirit. In the age of the spirit, as we see demonstrated in the New Testament, and as we've seen over the last 2000 years, things change. So here's that passage that, that you were just literally speaking of. And I, I thought it'd be good to read it because it, it's kind of comical uh, to me. It says this, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food, sacrifice to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual morality. You will do well to avoid these things. And it just says, farewell. I love that because there were 613, I think, Jewish laws. And they're looking yeah. at these Gentiles and saying, hey, don't eat food, sacrifice to idols, and avoid sexual morality. Man, if you guys can can handle that, I think we'll be good. And I think God will be good with that too, which just blows in the face of, of, of so many things. I think that once again, when you look at the Pharisees and, and the people who were saying, this is what it means, this is what it means to be a, the people of God. And, and yet this council got together and said, hey, don't eat food sacrificed to idols and avoid sexual immorality. Man, if you can, if you can do that. And then it just says, farewell. I mean, in the world in which we're living, if that if that's your standard, if you guys can live up to these things, you'll be doing well for yourselves. This, th this whole conversation reminds me also of a passage back in Numbers where Moses is really burdened 
with the burden of prophecy um, because he's the he's like the judge of the people. He's the mediator between God and the people. And Moses, he has this thought, this kind of prayer. Oh, that all God's people were prophets. This is what Moses says, the original uh, highest prophet of the Old Testament. He He says this phrase. And just in thinking about the world in which we live today, I think about our testimony and our witness as evangelical Christians. Hundreds of thousands of people who are not Christians have heard about this argument with John MacArthur. Yeah. And all of them are saying, see, this is what Christians are about. Yeah. They're about they're about keeping things this they're about keeping the status quo, holding on to it. They're about suppressing women. They're about all of these things. In the passage I just referenced about Moses, Joshua comes running to Moses and he says, Moses, Moses, there are these two men that are prophesying in the camp. And Moses says, man, don't worry about it. Yeah. I wish that all God's people were prophets. It reminds me of um, uh, in the New Testament, uh, disciples uh, came running saying, you know, these people are, are doing this. Uh, I think it was to Jesus in Jesus's name. And he was saying, he said, let them do it. Let them go. Essentially, we have bigger fish to fry in the church in North America than the fundamentals that we're going to hang our hats on at the end of the day. I mean, Jesus said that the world would know we were his disciples by how we loved one another. I mean, this was, this was to be our uh, signature in the world. Our fundamental. That's exactly right, Jeremy. Our fundamental was to be love. Yeah. May may there be a revival in the church in North America where uh, we really stop arguing about all these other little things, these technicalities of theology. May we become true evangelicals, true people of Christ's love in the world. The Evangelicals podcast is recorded at Lima Community Church of the Nazarene in Lima, Ohio.